seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We will pick up where we left off last week as we are in the highest and, and most loftiest passages in this gospel until we get to the resurrection in chapter 16. So many of us, as I said last week, call this section the continental divide in Mark because we've been uphill to this point and now we're going to go downhill. And I want to uh, refresh you a little bit on what we talked about last week. Last week we saw that there is a question that every human being will have to answer. It's the most important question that you will ever be faced with. And it's a question that comes from Jesus Christ himself. And the question is this, who do you say that I am? That's the question Jesus asks you. Who do you say that he is? And in 829, we saw that Peter boldly steps forward, representing all of the disciples, and he says, you are the Christ. Matthew adds, the son of the living God. Luke's version is, you are the Christ of God. There's only one correct answer to this question. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one. If you get this question wrong, your eternity is full of doom. If you get this question right, your eternity will be filled with what you were designed to do, and that is to worship God and enjoy Him forever. Last week, we were also taught by Jesus what it means for Him to be the Christ. It's one thing to carry the title. But it's another thing for him to do the title. He is the promised one. He is the anointed one. He was promised to come and die for man. So that man might be reconciled to God through belief and faith in that substitutionary death. And so Jesus in 31, chapter 8, 31 says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. So Jesus right there describes what it means for him to be the Christ. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to die. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise on the third day. Those are acts that define what it means to be the Christ. If these things don't happen, he's not the Christ. Period. It's all or nothing. So as we get ready to jump into some new territory this morning, I want you to think with me for a moment about this. Can you imagine the boldness that it took for Jesus Christ to prophesy about his rejection and his suffering and his murder and his resurrection. Can you imagine him knowing that that is certain to come? And he is teaching his disciples this truth about himself. That took, and he is fully man, that took boldness. And then can you imagine him going from this point in Mark And making his way to Jerusalem where that's going to happen. On a hill called Calvary. The wooden cross. And he doesn't detour. 
He goes straight to where God has appointed him to go. And then I want you to imagine this. Can can you imagine the love that Jesus Christ has for you and for me? That he would know this is where he's going and that he could proclaim that this is where he was going and that he would still in love say, I'll go do it, Father. We've gathered here this morning to worship a God who loves us beyond description. To walk right into that. We can say as we sang that first song this morning, Jesus Christ's love ran red. He loved us to the point of bleeding and dying. So as we work work through verses 31 through 38 this morning, I want you to hold right here, close at hand, the truth that Jesus Christ loved you and me immeasurably. Because he's going to call us to something here that's pretty extreme as well. Let me read the passage with us so that we can get the the setting here. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Mark was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But running and see, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross And follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you teach us through the words and the actions of your Son, Jesus, this morning? Would you change us because we've encountered this passage of Scripture? Would you change us once and for all until Christ comes again? And we pray this in his name. Amen. There are three things that we need to look at this morning from this passage. The first is this. We need to see the personal cost to Jesus to be the Christ. It cost him immeasurably to fulfill this title of Christ. Second, we need to see human logic turned upside down. And I think we will all identify with Peter very clearly in this passage. And then number three, we need to understand the cost... The personal cost to us to follow Jesus. Because it will cost us a lot as well. If it cost Christ a lot, it will cost his followers 
a lot. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's look at verse 31 where Jesus begins to teach them of the suffering and the death and the resurrection that he must endure. Jesus teaches his disciples, and I, and I want to say straightly, he's teaching you and me this morning what it will cost him personally to fulfill the title that God has given him of Christ, our Messiah. What he teaches goes against all human logic. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Yes, he's the perfect prophet. He's the perfect priest. He's the perfect king. These are all elements that we looked at last Sunday. And yet he teaches that he will be abused and murdered by human beings. That goes against the logic of the Messiah that Peter and the apostles and the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests. That goes against all the logic of all those people of that day. For when they thought of a Messiah that would come, they thought of someone that would come and set up the the kingdom of Israel on the throne in Jerusalem once and for all. And the rest of the world would be a footstool to this king. That's what they had in mind. But Jesus is not coming to do that this first time. And what further throws a wrench into this logic is the fact that the very humans that will abuse Jesus are no ordinary people. They're not pagans. They're not the people of the world. They are Jesus' own. According to Jesus, he says that he is going to be abused by the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. These are all people of God. These are not pagans, Gentiles. These are Jewish Israelites. They are the very leaders of God's people. They make up what's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the seat of religious power and authority in all of Israel. And the very religious leaders of Israel are going to kill the leader of Israel, God, on a cross. There are elders cited here. Just to give you a brief definition, there are 70 elders at this time. They are lay members of the ruling council of Israel. They're made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. Those are titles that we've heard throughout the book of Mark. Then Jesus names the chief priests. This is going to include the current chief priest who was Caiaphas at this time. But it also includes all the living former chief priests and all of their family members. Well, Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas and both of them are living at this time. And we see in the book of John where Jesus is brought before Annas and Caiaphas in his trial proceedings. And then we have scribes. The scribes are the legal experts of the Sanhedrin. They are the law clerks that write out and script out all the laws and make sure that the books are complete and the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. It's these three groups that make up the Sanhedrin and it is the Sanhedrin that will persecute Jesus Christ to death. It was these who hounded Jesus all the days of his ministry. It, are th- it is these that John speaks of in John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
It's astonishing that these would be the people that Jesus says will bring about the suffering and the persecution and the murder and the death. So what is the cost to Jesus for being the Christ? It's very personal and it's very extreme. It cost him his life at the hands of his own people. The very people he came to save. It was his life for yours that you may live forgiven forever. And this morning, the question is, do you believe that he did that for you 2,000 years ago? Second point, we see human logic turned upside down. And Peter is us. Let's be honest here. Peter responds to Jesus just like you and I would be very tempted to respond. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him in 32. And then here's the rebuke. Here's Jesus' response to the rebuke in 33. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's quite an amazing dialogue between Jesus and Peter. Jesus doesn't talk like this to anybody but Satan. In fact, let me show you. Uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 4, we see that Jesus has spoken like this before when Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. It is then that Jesus says to Satan after the third temptation, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written. And he rebukes him with the scriptures that God inspired long ago. So the only other time Jesus has said to someone, get behind me, Satan, is when he was dealing with Satan. And here he says it with Peter. It's an stunning exchange of words as we watch these two interact. Peter has just proclaimed Jesus to be the Christ. And now he's rebuking the one that he called the Christ. But after Jesus tells him what it means, what it will cost for him to be the Christ, Peter cannot accept it. Matthew and his gospel gives us the very words of the rebuke. Mark doesn't record them here, and Luke doesn't either. But Matthew writes this in Matthew 16, 22. When Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, he said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Pretty strong rebuke. Peter told Jesus never three times. He told him, never right here, this is the first time. He told Jesus, you will never wash my feet in the upper room the night he was betrayed. And then just moments later in that same evening, he told Jesus he would never betray him. Jesus said, yeah, you will. It'll be three times and I must wash your feet. So when Peter tells Jesus never, it never works out for Peter. And I'm going to tell you that's true for you and me. If you and I ever say never to Jesus Christ, I promise you, Peter is my example. It will never work out for you. Never. So why does Peter rebuke him? Again, he was expecting a triumphal king to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. Bang, right now, let's go get it done and let's rule and reign for all of eternity. Set up the eternal kingdom right now. And Jesus has got to rule and reign in a different manner. He's got to rule and reign in death. Persecution. So that he can rule and reign in a resurrection. 
So, this was the expectation of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, the disciples. Everybody expected this, but Jesus says, no, I'm to suffer and die. And he sets human logic on its ear. And what we see here, just a quick aside, what we see here is Peter is like the blind man that Jesus healed just verses earlier. He's got blurred vision. You remember the blind man said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Well, Peter sees Jesus, but he doesn't see him clearly and rightly. He's got blurred vision. Why? Because he has weak, undeveloped faith. And so here, Jesus tells Peter something very extreme that we all need to hear. He says in verse 33, You are not setting your mind on the things of God. You are setting your mind on the things of man. And we have this tendency within us. What Jesus said was foolishness to Peter. You put yourself in Peter's place for a moment. You and I know the rest of the story. We've read the rest of this gospel. Peter doesn't have this yet. You and I would rebuke Jesus, or we we might be in our minds rebuking him for sure, saying this does not make sense, Jesus. This will not happen to you, never. So we don't need to be down on Peter because we need to understand that we could be just like Peter if we were in that moment. But we need to also understand that Peter's rebuke of Jesus is satanic. That sounds extreme, but Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter utters a satanic rebuke to Jesus. Do you understand that there is a real Satan who would love nothing more than Jesus to not suffer at the hands of the chief priests and scribes and elders? There is a real Satan that does not want Jesus Christ to die on a cross for your sins. There is a real Satan that doesn't want Jesus to rise from the dead on the third day, thereby crushing the head of the serpent as prophesied in Genesis 3.15. This is why the serpent, Satan, encountered Jesus in the wilderness when he had been in the wilderness for 40 days fasting. This is why Satan came to him and tempted him three times to defy God. Because it was Satan's objective that Jesus not be without sin. He tempted Jesus to defy the commands of God. And he did it by slightly tweaking scriptures. We won't break those down. That's for another sermon at another time. But he came to Jesus with the word of God and he Tweaked it just a little bit, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. Same serpent, same Satan. First Adam, second Adam. Talked about that in discovery class just moments ago. So Satan did not want a crucified Jesus on a cross that would rise from the dead. He wanted a Jesus that would defy God and sin and live forever if he wanted to. Because you see, Jesus Christ had to be perfect, without sin, for him to be a a suitable sacrifice for us on the cross. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, all the lambs that are brought to the altar and 
offered to the Lord were without blemish, pointing to the day that Jesus would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus, to be suitable on the cross as a substitute for us, had to be perfect and without sin. And Satan tempted him three times in the wilderness in an effort to get Jesus to defy his Father in heaven. And so now when Peter says, this will not happen to you, Jesus recognizes that voice and that logic and that thinking to be that of Satan whom he encountered in the wilderness. And it's because of that that he says, get behind me, Satan. So in that moment, as it was in the wilderness, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, and in this moment, as Peter tries to stand in revolt against what Jesus says must happen, we have a colossal duel going on between God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the enemy, the adversary, Satan. So in this moment, Jesus uses Peter's rebuke to teach the crowds, because the text says in verse 34, he called the crowds to him with his disciples. He gets a large group of people together because they have watched Peter rebuke, and now he's going to teach everybody, not just the disciples, everybody, including you and me, something very, very important, something critical that you must leave here with a full grasp of this morning. This is crucial teaching from Jesus because verse 34 says that he is calling the crowds together and the disciples and he is going to tell them something that is critical. This, what Jesus is going to say next is extremely gracious on his part. What he is going to say to you and me this morning is born out of grace for us. He wants us ready for something. He wants us to understand that to follow Him is going to cost us something very personal. And it's good that we would go into the world knowing this instead of being surprised by this. He says, if we truly come after Him, then we will deny ourselves and like Him, take up and bear a cross. And Jesus grounds this call to take up our cross in four, what I'm going to call four statements, F-O-R. There's four times that he says the, the conjunction F-O-R or because is a word that you could substitute in there. So I want you to look with me in verse 35. In verse 35 they start, and I'd, I'd recommend that you'd circle in your Bibles these words for because these are ground clauses that he grounds his statement that we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. These are the reasons why we should do this. So number one, we see in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But ever, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now be careful here. Be careful with this. We often say, this is just the cross that I'm going to have to bear in this life. And we say that about the wrong things. This is not about health. This is not about your financial situation. 
This is not about working with a difficult boss. This is not about having a, a difficult teacher to get through a school year with or a coach that rides you too hard. It's not about having cars that don't work. Those are not crosses to bear according to Jesus. Because Jesus grounds this in two phrases. For my sake and for the gospels. So Jesus is talking about being persecuted because you follow him and you believe in him. This is not because things don't work in your life. This is because people take stand against you because of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. He says, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, if you believe that Jesus Christ came, never sinned, died on a cross in your place, was buried and rose on the third day bodily and ascended to the right hand of God where he lives right now to make an intercession for you and me. He's praying for us until the day that he will come again to gather us up. If you believe in that, that's the gospel. And you will be persecuted for that in this world. They were, and everybody in all the centuries from then to now were, and we are, and we will be, and the generations after us will be until Christ comes again. We will be persecuted. Paul writes to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's certain. And we can endure it with joy. This isn't a downer. It is a joy and a privilege to identify with God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Because eternity is at stake as we endure. So Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. We need to be willing to lose our lives in this world. You know, we live in a fallen world. Let's apply this for a moment. We live in a fallen world, no doubt about it. The world that we live in does not proclaim this kind of message. The world that we live in says, look out for yourself, love yourself, take care of yourself. You are number one. You deserve this and that, and you don't deserve that and that. That's the culture that has penetrated even within us. And we have that running through our veins. The worldly way of living is, to use a kid's rhyme, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? We've said that before in our lives. But the way of the kingdom is, finders, weepers, losers, keepers. It's different. It's different. And we've got to get the formula right, if I dare call it that, because eternity is in the balance for how we live in this world. And Jesus calls us to be willing to lose our lives for the sake of his name and his gospel. And in so doing, we will gain our lives for all of eternity. So it's a matter of perspective, just like we're talking about on Wednesday night in money, possessions, and eternity. Treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. That's the perspective that Christ is calling us to. Let's look at the second four statement in verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jim Elliott, he's quoted in our study on Wednesday night, but he's, he's the missionary that died in South America uh, at the hands of 
Aborigines. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's think about that for a moment. You are not a fool if you give what you cannot keep. You cannot keep your life in this world. You will die. It is certain. You cannot keep all the possessions that you get in this world. They will not go with you to heaven. It is certain. When you give up your possessions for the benefit of the kingdom, when you give up your life and you surrender to live for the glory of Jesus Christ instead of yourself, you're not a fool. You're wise. Because you're living for eternity. And in so doing, you will gain something that you cannot lose. When you live for the glory of Christ and His gospel, you will be given eternal life and you cannot lose it. And that is the call this morning. To take up your cross and follow Jesus, losing your life in this world and gaining your life for all of eternity. That is the calling that we have here before us. We have a political candidate in our midst that's living against this. We have a political candidate that we could easily say has gained the whole world. He's bought everything. He's built everything. He doesn't need anybody to help him. He claims to be a Christian. Yet he says openly, he has never sinned. He's never committed a sin. He said he's messed up. He's never asked God for forgiveness. And when he makes mistakes, he just goes and makes it right. He builds a building or raises some money. This is not what Jesus is talking about. There's a call to give up our lives in this world so that we may gain our lives out of this world for eternity. Jim Elliott says he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And our political candidate says, thank you very much, I've taken care of myself. He's living in absolute contradiction to what Jesus calls us to. We need to see this and we need to understand this. We need to be informed by it. We need to be warned by it. The third fourth statement is in verse 37. For what can a man give in return for his soul, Jesus asks. The bad news is, there is nothing that we can do physically to gain our souls. Listen to Psalm 49, verse 7. God says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. No man can do that. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit, which is hell. No man can ransom his own life. No man. But the gospel, the good news is that Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for yours. We're going to look at this in weeks ahead in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So the application is, no man can do anything to ransom his soul. 
Only God can do that. And I'm telling you this morning that God did that in His Son, Jesus Christ. And you get the benefit of that ransom if you will believe that He died sinless in your place, a sinner. And that He rose on the third day. So what can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. Man is totally dependent on God to provide the ransom. And now here's the last and fourth four. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus talked like this in another place. In Matthew chapter 10, 32, he says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So when Jesus comes again, according to this Mark passage, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, can you imagine Jesus being ashamed of you before the Father? Because you were ashamed of Jesus before man. That's what this passage says. If you are ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before my Father. Can you just imagine when Jesus Christ comes again? Him saying to God the Father, I'm ashamed of him or her. Can you imagine Jesus Christ, God the Son, denying you before the Father? Because you denied him before mankind. Can you imagine that scenario? So the call here this morning is, do not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Do not deny Jesus Christ before mankind. Proclaim him and advance him and promote him before mankind. That is our call. We are to declare Christ to a lost world so that they might lose their lives and gain eternity with Jesus Christ. If we deny Christ and if we're ashamed of Him to the world, we are not fulfilling the Great Commission. and We are not evangelizing the lost and building the kingdom for Christ. Are you tempted in intense moments, maybe awkward moments in life to deny Jesus Christ? Let's be honest. I've been there. I remember a moment in an airport in Entebbe, Uganda. I had to think twice. And it really, really bothered me. We have moments here in town. We don't have to go around the world, do we? Where we say, am I willing to go there? Might cost me. Well, Jesus has a cure for that. I want you to write down Mark, Matthew 10, 28, next to this verse 38 in Mark 8. Jesus says to us, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who 
may kill the body, but they cannot kill your soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is that? That is God. Some say that's Satan. That is not Satan. Satan cannot sovereignly destroy you. God is the God who judges. And if Jesus denies you to the Father, if Jesus is ashamed of you to the Father, the Father will judge you and say, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, and never knew you. And you will go to a place called hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. Do not fear man who has merely breath in his nostrils, Isaiah 2.22. You fear God, the one who can cast you into hell. And When you fear Him, you will love Him. You will proclaim Him to mankind. And it is our prayer that they will join you in loving Him. So let me conclude by applying this. We need to, we need to get this application right this morning. L- let's apply verses 34 through 38. These, these four statements that we work through. We need to go back and apply these with verse 31. Jesus said in verse 31, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Notice who Jesus does not name in verse 31. He does not name the Caesars, Herod, Gentiles, pagans, Roman centurions. He only names Jewish leaders. He only names the people of God. He names the most religious, in fact, of God's people. Chief priests, elders, scribes. The most religious, the most knowledgeable people of God's Law and book, the Old Testament at the time. These are the ones Jesus says will persecute him. (laughs) Now they'll use Romans to do it. But it is the religious leaders of Israel that persecute and murder Jesus. The hard truth is that we too can and must expect persecution from Religious people. Some of the most severe persecution that we can experience can come from within the confines of the church. Believing and proclaiming and applying the Bible literally can get you in hot water even in the churches, especially in America. And we might just very well be persecuted by people who gather with us. Jesus was persecuted by his own people. We will be persecuted by his own people, perhaps, too. We must not be surprised. We must not be shocked. If this 
happened to Jesus, it will happen to us. And Jesus warns us of this. Matthew 10, 17. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. First century churches. This is what Jesus means when he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. This is what it means when he says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will actually save it. We must be willing to endure persecution, even from people who claim to be the people of God. It cost Jesus everything to be the Christ. And it will cost you everything to be his follower. And if you pay the price of giving up everything to follow him, you will gain everything for all of eternity. Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things. Paul said... Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is the road to salvation, and the road contains persecution. So be informed this morning. Let's make sure we don't persecute one another, and let's make sure that we strengthen one another as we endure persecution, and let's do this worshipfully and with joy, for that is one of the reasons why Christ has given us the church. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for enduring persecution from your own people for us. And I pray that we would be a people that would endure persecution for your sake. And that as we do so, a lost and dying world, maybe even those that persecute us, would come to saving faith in, your son, in you, Jesus Christ. Help us to endure well, worshipfully, joyfully knowing that eternity is promised and guaranteed and it will far supersede anything that we could desire on this earth. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.